everyone, and welcome to our first podcast where we're looking at carbohydrate counting. My name's Jan Orford, and I'll once again be your host. Today's podcast will concentrate on providing members with an evidence-based approach to carbohydrate counting, and I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Carmel Smart. Carmel's a clinical researcher and practitioner who is internationally recognised as a leading authority in nutrition and type 1 diet. Diabetes. Carmel holds appointments as a senior diabetes dietitian and clinical research fellow at the John Hunter Children's Hospital and is a conjoint senior lecturer at the University of Newcastle. Hi Carmel, welcome and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Hi Jan and hello to everyone listening. I'd just like to thank the ADA for inviting me to speak on this topic, carb counting, and it's a great pleasure to be here. Okay, I'd like to start perhaps, Carmel, getting you to tell us a little bit about your research and how it relates to our topic today on carbohydrate counting. Great. Um, our research at the John Hunter Children's Hospital and Hunter Medical Research Institute is done by a multidisciplinary team of researchers, including diabetes educators. And what we're focusing on is the impact of variations in carbohydrate, fat and protein amounts on postprandial glucose control in type 1 diabetes. So how that arose was as a clinician working with young people and families, you often get questions about how accurately people need to carbohydrate count. And more recently, because continuous glucose monitoring has been introduced, we've been asked a lot about what is the impact of other foods on blood glucose levels such as fat and protein. So that's really what our research has been focusing on. And we've been doing that for about the last 15, 15 years. So initially, we did two studies with Oxford Children's Hospital in the UK, first looking at how accurately kids needed to carbohydrate count. Because at the time in 2004, many health professionals thought that people simply couldn't do it. And I know that seems odd today because it's a routine part of our practice. But I remember many conferences where people simply said, it's a technique that people can't learn. So what we and others have found is that people with diabetes can count carbs, usually better than health professionals, but it's not a one-off education. It's really important to reteach carbohydrate amount as people grow and move out of home and eat out more or um, move into different living conditions. And as such, it's really important they stay in touch with their health professionals to learn about that. And the other question we looked at was how accurately people needed to carbohydrate count. So did carbohydrate counting down to the last gram make a difference in terms of their accuracy and how good their blood glucose levels were, as opposed to if they just estimated carbohydrate? And what we found was that in both people using insulin pump therapy and MDI, that a single mealtime insulin dose covered a range in carbohydrate counting, such that they didn't need to count absolutely accurately in a meal down to the last gram. But as long as they estimated to within 10 to 15 grams, that could help improve their blood glucose control. And so really now what we're looking at is the effect of variations in fat and protein and the impact that causes. And I think an important message from our new research 
is that if your blood glucose levels are high three to five hours after you eat, it's not necessarily because of inaccurate carbohydrate counting. It may well be because of the fat and protein amount in the food that you're eating. Interesting stuff. Thanks, Carmel. The, the evidence you've outlined obviously supports the teaching of carbohydrate counting for people with type 1 diabetes. But are you able to perhaps briefly outline what's the best method for teaching carbohydrate counting and when is the best time to start? Well, Jen, what our research really showed, that, and the American Diabetes Association guidelines have endorsed this, that there is no evidence to suggest one method of carbohydrate counting is better than another. So I think there's been an assumption in the past that if you started, for example, pump therapy, that because pumps have the facility to enter grams in exact amounts, that that was the way that you had to be taught. And certainly at our centre, which um, achieves in terms of HbA1c, a recent report by something called the ADDEN report, so the Australian Diabetes Database Network, has shown that our clinic achieves very um, good HbA1c averages, but that is without teaching people carbohydrate counting in exact grams. So because of the research I've just talked about earlier, what we know is that patients and people with type 1 diabetes can learn exchanges and still apply that to pumps. So it's really about what suits the individual and also it's about not assuming that gram counting is the only way forward, that you can either use um, exchanges or portions as a means to carbohydrate count. And again, we looked at this in a study with Oxford in the UK and what we found was that people who did carbohydrate counting in grams, in terms of when they estimate the amount in food, aren't any better than people who uh, teach, learn it, sorry, in exchanges or portions. So any of those methods, uh, as long as they suit the individual, are fine to implement into daily diabetes management. The other thing that's important to say is that I firmly believe, as do our team, but there's no research around this, but it is something that has been incorporated into the ISPAD guidelines, which is the International Society of Paediatric and Adolescent Guidelines for Diabetes, the best time to start is at diabetes onset. Because if you think about it, when you are first diagnosed with something, you're probably at your most receptive to learning about its management. So we think the best time to start um, is when you're first diagnosed with diabetes. However, just to say, if an individual isn't using intensive therapy, such as multiple daily injection therapy or pump therapy, if they're just using conventional therapy, then it may not have as much meaningfulness in their day-to-day -day life. They won't see the impact of it as much as if they use multiple daily injection therapy or pump therapy, where they will clearly see that an insulin to carbohydrate ratio will help improve their blood glucose levels and also offer them more flexibility in the amount of carbohydrate they eat at a meal time. So having said all that, Carmel, are there any tips that you can give our members to consider when talking about food and carb count? Well, I guess, I mean, I see people with type 1 diabetes every day for the last 25 years and I've really been privileged to do that. And I think some of the tips that I'm going to talk about are tips that they also give me. So Carbohydrate counting, what's important to recognise about it is that it's only one aspect of a nutrition intervention and that needs to be taught in the context of what the outcomes are for the individual. So if the individual desires weight loss, 
for example, quite clearly implementing carbohydrate counting is important because it enables them flexibility in carbohydrate amount and enables them to have a lower carbohydrate amount should they choose in order to lose weight and at the same time reduce their their insulin dose accordingly. But it is important that it's done as part of um, an emphasis not just on quantity but also on carbohydrate quality. So what I mean by carbohydrate quality is the type of carbohydrate you're eating. So if you're eating um, chocolate, that's not equal quite clearly in nutritional quality to an apple. So it's giving the message that not all carbs are equal, that you can still eat carbohydrate that's you know, cake and biscuits from time to time, just like the rest of the population does. And But unlike the rest of the population, you don't want to overconsume those types of carbohydrate. So it has to be done within the context of a healthy eating message. And the other thing that people with diabetes have told us, so the Daphne participants, which is a dose adjustment for normalized eating participants, told us was that mealtime routines need to underlie all education. So it should not be seen as eat whatever you like, whenever you like. No one can do that. And people with diabetes will say to you, it's, it, that's even more difficult for us to do because we want to be able to interpret what's happening with our blood glucose levels. And if we eat all the time, graze over the day, then they end up having a, people with diabetes end up having postprandial highs all day. And that makes it difficult to control their diabetes. So I think those two principles are really important. That you have to have healthy eating principles and mealtime routines involving regular, but not exactly the same time, but regular breakfast, lunch and dinner in order to achieve what people usually want to achieve in glycemic management. And the other thing I guess to say is it's really important to follow people up. You can't just sort of commence carbohydrate counting and, and an insulin to carbohydrate ratio. We would know that as health professionals working with diabetes, but sometimes I think um, in clinical practice, occasionally people learn a technique such as carbohydrate counting and then never have advice ever again and then say, well, that didn't work. Just like anything um, that you do in life, you do need to have follow-up um, with that and then it usually needs to be titrated over time. So, for example, if you start carbohydrate counting um, from diabetes onset, the insulin to carbohydrate ratio that might be um, prescribed by the diabetes educator or the doctor will well change over the course of um, the honeymoon period and will well change them when they come out of honeymoon. So follow-up is really, really important for people um, to make sure that it works for them. Thanks, Carmel. You mentioned this before, but if you could just reiterate for us, uh, where does fat, protein and GI fit in in this, in this process? Are they important or is it all about the carbs? No, that's a really good question. <laughs> it's not all about the carbs. So... Clearly, um, we've been doing research in this area since 2015, 2014. So what happened was we were looking at continuous glucose monitoring traces of participants who were doing some of our carb studies. And what we could see was that there were unexpected changes in blood glucose levels similar to what you would get from an unbolused 15 grams or up to 30 grams of carb much later on, like three to five hours after they ate. And if that was in the evening, that would result in the child or the young person having high blood glucose levels out of target all night. 
So what we found from that was that research done by our team and also other teams, the Joslin um, in Sydney and over in um, Poland, was that fat and protein also impact postprandial glycemia. And we currently have developed an algorithm now to dose for fat and protein that we're taking to clinical trials. But it really shows that fat and protein cause delayed blood glucose levels to rise. So when you um, have carbohydrate, it causes an early peak. So when you eat carbohydrate, you get a peak in your blood glucose levels in the first 60 to 90 minutes. And then if you've given the right amount of insulin for that carb, your level will come back down to within target ranges at about two and a half to three hours after you eat. With fat and protein, that's when you start to rise. So with fat and protein, you don't kind of see a rise in that first two to three hours after you eat, but your blood glucose levels start to rise at about two and a half, three hours get reaching a peak probably five to eight hours after you eat. So, and that rise can be as high as unbolused carbohydrate can be. So definitely it's not all about um, the carbs. And what we're working on at the moment is ways to manage that. So insulin dosing strategies that enable you to manage that. So quite clearly, it's not about the insulin just that you give up front so that before the meal, it's also about the insulin that you give um, over time after the meal and how that's managed in pump therapy is by a combinational dual wave bolus where you give some of the insulin at the beginning and some of the insulin over three to five hours to match the response of fat and protein and then with multiple daily injection therapy it usually involves um, a second injection and the timing of that may differ depending some studies show 60 minutes um, we're doing a study currently with the timing around 90 minutes and there has been one study as much as three hours after the meal. So it's really to say people with diabetes actually have known this for a long time and have told me this for a long time but now it's really a lot of research going into this area because as postprandial targets tighten and and um, you know things like hybrid closed loop pumps and um, we're working towards an automated system for meal delivery for insulin. It's more important that we understand the impact of fat and protein as well. So no, it's not all about carbs. And it's also not all about um, carbohydrate amount. It's also about carbohydrate type. So that's where GI fits in. So with GI, um, quite back in 2008, we did a study looking at multiple daily injection therapy in GI and found that high glycemic index meals cause a four millimole higher amount um, of peak blood glucose levels than what a low GI meal does. So it causes a much higher peak from a high GI meal than you get with a low GI meal. So all of those things are relevant. Fat, protein and GI are relevant in terms of trying to achieve optimal glycemia after you eat. Now, people with diabetes don't just think about optimal glycemia after they eat quite clearly. They, you know, they think about just eating for sociability and eating um, just like, you know, when they go out for fun um, and also about the quality of the food that they eat. So all of that has to be factored in as well when you're teaching about carbohydrate counting. And strategies that you might use for a two-year-old, so I see two-year-olds in my clinical practice, would be different to 
the teachings I might go through with a young person who's about to transition to adult clinic. So one important thing though, across all that age group, and this is really important for every practitioner, is to give insulin prior to eating. So studies clearly not show that the advice to give insulin after you start to eat is no longer um, acceptable in any clinical guideline. It's really important to have insulin before you eat. And in some instances, CGM is showing us, so continuous glucose monitoring is showing us that might need to be 20 to 30 minutes before you eat in order to not have that really high peak that you might have after carbohydrate. And I guess just one last point I just wanted to comment on is that there is a tendency to include lower carbohydrate diets. And I think part of that is frustration with the peaks and the troughs that you get from carbohydrate amounts. So what's important is to go through with a person with diabetes, how they can best minimise those peaks um, whilst eating a diet containing carbohydrate. So how best to give the insulin in terms of the timing. So moving that insulin injection maybe up to 20 minutes earlier before they eat or the type of carbohydrate they're eating, you know, including fruit and dairy and um, maybe some pro adding some protein to a particularly high carbohydrate meal to dampen that blood glucose level rise. Well, Carmel... I personally have found it fascinating to hear about the, the current research in this area and I'm sure our members will have gained huge insight into this important area of diabetes management. But I, I wonder if before we end you're able to give our members perhaps three take-home messages that might get them started in terms of evidence-based practice in carbohydrate counting. Sure, Jan. I think the first thing to remember is that no one method of carbohydrate counting has been shown to be better than other methods. So if you're seeing a person with type 1 diabetes, adapting to the method that they perhaps have been using for the past 20 years, if they're new to seeing you and they've come from a different area, if they're, for example, using exchanges in their pump, that that is as um, good, good in terms of their blood glucose control outcomes and in terms of their accuracy in carbohydrate counting as what counting in exact grams would be. Um, another thing that really clearly we learnt from our research that I in fact found um, a little bit surprising at the time, although now it's really obvious, is that people of all different backgrounds and of all different mathematical capabilities, of all different indeed um, intellectual disability, you know, intellectual abilities can learn to carbohydrate count with accuracy. So we teach it to all of um, the kids at the John Hunter Children's Hospital and their families. And what we have found was that kids as young as seven could carbohydrate count with accuracy, and that people of all different backgrounds could. And so there's, there shouldn't be an assumption that you have to be, you know, have great literacy skills or great mathematical skills in order to do it. I think educators are skilled enough to adapt their methods to enable everyone to do it. So don't be put off, I guess is what I'm trying to say, is that people can learn carbohydrate counting with accuracy. And what we found was that, in fact, patients or people, sorry, with people with diabetes were more accurate than health professionals, including diabetes educators, dietitians and doctors, because they're living with it every day and they're doing this every day. 
And finally, the third take-home message would be if blood glucose levels are unexpectedly high three to five hours after a meal, it may not mean inaccurate carbohydrate counting. It could mean that it might be from the impact of fat and protein. So once upon a time, it would have been assumed that carbohydrate counting was inaccurate. And that used to, in my experience, drive people a little bit crazy because they go, look, I thought I counted it correctly, Carmel, but you know my levels are really high three to five hours after we eat. Now we know that it's um, probably the impact of fat and protein that is causing that rise. And so you can validate their response and say, well, actually, carbohydrate counting fine. It's actually these other macronutrients and we need to give you strategies to manage those. Carmel, thank you once again. I'm sure that this podcast really has inspired our members to start thinking about working towards expanding their skills in this area. So thank you. Thank you, Jan. It's been good fun and it's a, it's a, I think it's a really interesting area and it's a really important area for people with type 1 diabetes. As um, people with type 1 diabetes have said lots of times in the past, diet is one of the hardest aspects to manage well. So I think if we can simplify the concepts for people um, to imply, apply in their daily lives, that makes a big difference to both you know, optimising glycemia, but also really importantly, quality of life. Thank you. And thank you to members for taking the time to listen to this podcast. And please take the time to download some of the valuable references that have been provided on our LMS site. You can also upload any questions that you may like our speakers to address and we'll get back to you. So thank you once again, Carmel, and see all of you out there next fortnight for our next podcast episode. Thank you and goodbye.